We are tonight's entertainment. You can't handle the truth. The fire rises. Pizza time. You're a wizard, Harry. So it begins. You know how much I sacrifice? You think that's air you're breathing? Groovy. I don't have friends. I got family. We are services hello trent hello parth if that even is your real name you seem closer to me than ever before well not ever before we've sat at this exact table and yeah i realized and done this exact thing many a time before specifically and most recently uh jaws for drunk pod yeah parentheses drunk pod that's the only one of our episodes that doesn't have a year listed because the year is that we were drunk when we recorded it Mm. Um, but here we are back in the SoCam 290 apartments room, room one, um, in the, we're, we're on the top floor. We'll just say the penthouse suite. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The penthouse. But today, happy Halloween, Trent, as of recording. I, maybe I'm, we've featured many Halloween themed episodes over the years, but for scheduling and fun reasons, I feel like this is the first time we've ever recorded on halloween we've ever been we've ever been required to i think last year we released an episode on halloween that was the end well it must have been because last halloween was a sunday yeah i guess so and uh, happy birthday virage marate whoa you think virage is is he dressed up friend of the show no he's not he was gonna borrow my top gun jacket but you were wearing it just minutes ago yeah that was why pete maverick mitchell yes do you think Faraj is trick or treating, or is he too old for that sort of stuff? I think it. W- I don't. I know that he wants to, but I don't think scheduling wise he can. I feel like he's right on the age cusp of. Wait, do you know how old he is now? Fifteen. Oh yeah, nice. He's right on the age cusp of being too old, or thinking he's too old, or thinking he's too cool, or thinking he's not cool enough. Bro. I know. I was telling him like good places to go trick or treating that I'd gone to. Um, it's you want another place? Sure. Chindia. Ooh, I- doesn't that Do sound tell. It sounds like you can say that, but I can't. Yeah. Um, basically, a lot of Chinese and Indian American um, kids mm. will live there in Bridgewater. Um, although I don't think it's in Bridgewater, technically. But Bridgewater kids go there. Or live there. Is that the name of a neighborhood? or No, it's, or it's, it's, it's colloquially known as Chindia. It's not... Its legal name is not Chindia. But anyways, I was saying that... Um, is it just a sector of Bridgewater, your hometown? Yes, although, but I'm I, again, I'm not sure if like Chindia is technically on the outskirts of Bridgewater. Okay, um, Chindia's, pardon me, uh, exact location. Yeah, Trent, and, I and whereabouts? You, you said it, and I felt very uncomfortable. And the hesitation only made it only made it seem worse. No, it's it's. I'll I'll give you the pass. I'll allow for it. this one time. Um, but yeah, so I told him that he should go trick or treating in that area, and he was like, "I'm not going there. I don't have any friends there. I don't want to go there." And it's all like, about where the the king size bars are. It's not where about where your friends are. And I was like, "What? What? What's wrong with you?" Um, well, Viraj is at the age. I mean, and he's taller than you. To the fact that's where nice. he could Thank make the that. argument of, "I have money, probably not a lot, but definitely enough to go to the grocery store and buy a bag of candy." Trent, you sound ridiculous. And right when you reach that point, it's like I could, I could justify not going trick or treating. I had chips ahoy. Because I was uh, right out of class, walking with Trent, actually, straight from class. Um, and I was feeling peckish, because mm. I had kind of a small lunch. A little sweet tooth? 
Well, oh, it is Halloween after all. It, it is. Um, you need your uh, your your quota, sweet yeah. quota. And we had to record because I'm going home right after this yep. to go celebrate Viraj Marate's birthday. Um, and I offered you chips ahoy because you could not remember what you'd eaten last, but then you said, "No, Pat, I got this. I remembered." Yeah, no. Uh, when we're not recording, I actually sound like Jason Statham when I talk to you. Um, but I'm in crank too. It's a Megalodon. You know, from the Meg. Yeah, no, he says that. Wait, yeah, dude, wasn't it weird when Jason Statham appeared in, in... Collateral? That and Jurassic World Dominion, but anyways. When is, I, when is Jason Statham in Jurassic World no, Dominion? No, the, the joke was that. Oh! Yeah. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. But he is in Collateral. He is I in thought, Collateral. I thought that's where this was going. No. But do you want to know what I've been eating? I do. Um, I was... Uh, in Zoom class, and Sarah Brotman, friend of the show, well, officially and unofficially, was She's going in a weird gray area. Yeah, was going to hidden hidden grounds, which used to be simply chai. Yeah, what is? I'm that? just saying where on Ham. I'm just saying streets now, but on Easton, on Easton, there was a coffee shop used to be called Simply Chai. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. it was reabsorbed by Hidden Grounds, which was the parent company that it broke free from. And now it's a sad story because it's been retaken over. Damn, that sucks. Yeah, um, but they still. It it's the same exact menu. Oh, okay. Um, but it, it is a fun restaurant in that at any given moment, despite paying the same amount for some food, you could be given their avocado toast, and it could be either very good or surprisingly mediocre. And today was a really good day in that wow. in that department. That's nice. Um, ate the first half, and then I tucked it away, did some work, and then I reopened it, and there was one small fly on it, and I thought, I'm gonna gonna swat you away, and then eat the second half. That's all you can do. Yeah. At at this point in my life, um, and what what I'd really like to do at this point in my life is I, sit I was, back. Wow. Sit back with my boy Parth, eat some Chips Ahoy cookies, talk about the film of the week this week. Uh, you know how you get there. There's only one way. I'm lost. I need trouble navigating. Wait, Trent, to get to the intro, you first... <laughs> oh my god, I'm hearing something in the distance. I think it's the sound of the danger zone. <laughs> I apologize to anyone who listens to more than one episode of our show because we just because re- now it's just in every episode because we just repeat the same jokes. Oh, but this is the first episode of Cruise Palooza. Oh wow! So for the first time, maybe ever, it's it's motivated us doing this. It actually makes some sort of sense within right, the craft services of recording. Diegesis. So cue the intro. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film, and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the picture. Trent, now that I have you here in my grasp, yep. 
I'm reaching over. Parth and I are doing like an ET touch with our index fingers touching in the middle yeah, of his dining room table. It's pretty magical. Um, but this week we are talking about a, one of your guys. One of my guys. Yeah. Oh, oh, as in the director of the film is yeah. one of my guys? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, 1999 Correct. film. Or maybe it's 1998. Or It's 1999. Okay. So the... So, uh, Quote, the best year in recent film history, or 2007, is that what you argue? Or other people argue uh, that because there will be blood. 1999 is clearly the best, Mm -hmm. um, but 2004 weirdly has a lot of good movies, and 2014 has a lot of good movies, and 2017. um, But I know some people say 2007, too, because of There Will Be Blood and um, No Country for Old Men. But that's it. There's really... Oh, oh, Spider-Man 3 came out. 2007 the more time that goes by maybe the more i like spider-man 3 no i I, you're taught you're preaching to the choir here (laughs) okay Um, so we all all adults here on the pod today yeah all adults here to discuss another film yes by another filmmaker with actors production needless to say sound sound oh i see what you did there um this is an extension of uh, what we're improv improvisationally calling the craft services sound extravaganza. Wow! After interviewing Disaster Piece composer for Vibes Wise Bodies, straight into our interview with today's guest, sound mixer John Pritchett. Sound mixer John Pritchett. Yeah. Parth, this interview, you were there. I was there. John Pritchett was there. Uh, we were all present, and uh, this is just part one, Trent, mm. of a two-part interview. Uh, are, is this us giving away the fact that all of our interviews yes. over Cruzapalooza will be two-parters? Yes. Um, we figured that it's more consumable to have it in 30 to 40-minute chunks than hour and hour, 10-minute long episodes. Um and preferable to us because we get to buy some more time to get you guys some more interviews. Yep. But this is part one. Um, he's really cool. I've edited this uh, half of the episode already. He talks a l- quite a bit about Tom Cruise. Mm. Um, but that's how more fitting. towards the end. He, he, he explains fitting. a lot about sound mixing, what it is, how it's different from sound design. Specific scenes. How it's changed. Um, specific scenes is next episode. Oh, oh. But, but this episode... Um, yeah, he, he he talks. Ooh, he, this he gives the tea and coffee truck uh, story. You've been mentioning that more and more. Yeah, I mean, isn't that just awesome? Isn't that just the cruise of fucking Palooza? Yes, yes. Uh, whenever you were, I mean, you're Tom Cruise in some capacity at all times. But over Halloween, it's really let you embrace. Yeah, embrace I was, it, and so I was you Pete Maverick Mitchell for and, Halloween, and so. Uh, You've been grabbing a lot of forearms and smiling and moving much faster than usual. Yeah. And talking about coffee trucks and Top Gun and flying planes and the magic of the movies. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the driest, deepest throat noise then. Oh, we're talking about sound mixer John Pritchett. And I think it's time we just... Talking with him. I think it's time we just cut to the interview. I'd say it's about time. It's interview o'clock. Sorry, let's just, let's just let me check my watch. <clears throat> oh, look at that. Yeah, no, it, it five minutes ago it was 5.35, but right about now, interview o'clock. 
Cue the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with John Pritchett. He's a three-time Academy Award-nominated sound mixer behind such films as Dirty Dancing, There Will Be Blood, Avengers Endgame, and our film for today, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So just just to start off, uh, what would you say your relationship with film was uh, at a young age? Uh, You know, not very, honestly. I kind of got started in movies a little later than most. I was in the uh, the recording studio business for for a long time. Uh, and then I was in the TV business for a while before I finally went freelance uh, as a sound engineer, sound mixer, uh, doing mostly commercials and, and industrials and stuff like that. I didn't start doing, doing films until uh, 1979. And then I did my very mm-hmm. first film, which was a documentary, the only documentary I've ever done in my career, uh, which was I was on the first expedition to find the Titanic. Mm. So, well, did they find how, it? How did that go? We didn't find it. It was found uh, that two expeditions later by somebody else with the same path we did. We were just about 10 miles off, uh, and they found it. Ballard, which is named Ballard. Uh, it was quite an adventure. Seven, seven weeks in the North Atlantic. So what was the first non, was first major motion picture? Well, like Major? <laughs> or like how, how, did, how did you get more uh, like established on set after that, and then you knew that that's what you wanted to do? Well, you know, I started doing a lot of things. I come from, I grew up in Dallas, uh, where the film community was, we had a good uh, film business there, sort of, not compared to LA, but there were only four people, four guys in the, in the, in the town were, that were sound experts. And two of them were already doing movies, TV movies and whatever came around. And the other two, my, me and the other fellow there, we did all the other stuff, the commercials and everything. So we didn't really have a chance to do movies until it came along. And uh, I got asked to do this really horrible, movie uh down in south texas in fact most of us in my community my friends have got our start doing this this movie it came out being called uh the return of josie wales not the ballad of josie wales and it was every bad thing that could happen in a movie happened in the very first movie i ever did everything uh, and, and and it was never released uh well they they say it was released but it really wasn't it was four walls which means they put it in a theater so they could claim that it was released. Uh, and I all ended up in the lawsuits. It was a mess. Uh, and that was our first experience. <laughs> like, well, it was, if it's no worse than this, I guess we'll, we'll survive. So I guess like getting into sound mixing itself, I feel like there's a lot of confusion about the difference between sound mixing and sound design and how, mm-hmm. you know, especially I think the Academy has now made it one sound award. And so that creates even further confusion. So if yeah. you could just sort of explain what is your job, because okay. I feel like a lot of people don't really sure. know that. And my father never did understand what I did. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a location sound mixer for the music, for the movie industry, which means that I go on location where everything, everything is done in the field during the shooting of the, of the movie. That's what I do. I do all that sound, dialogue, sound effects, music, everything that happens in the field that falls on me and my department. And then our work goes into the hands of post-production, sound editorial, uh, sound sound effects, uh, uh, all, all uh, added dialogue, ADR, all kinds of that. That happens after I'm already off the movie. So I start it, they finish it. 
So so I I I'm sure there's someone dedicated to holding the boom pole. So are, I'm sure are you like watching like the levels or how are you overseeing all of this? What do I actually do? Yeah. Uh, well, I have a, I have a mixer mm-hmm. or two, and, so, and I have all the microphones that work come to me. The mixer, one of the microphones, at least one is always the boom microphone, because I have a boom operator who operates that. And then uh, if they're wireless microphones, they all come into the mixer. And I make a mix, but then it also gets all totally separated into ISO tracks uh, of all those different microphones that are there. And that's something that's, uh, I'm back when it, when we started, when I started doing this, that didn't, that wasn't how it worked. Uh, we had, I had a mono recorder and I made the mix of all the microphones. And then post production, we'd have to adjust and fix things if there was a problem. But our mix was the mix. I still, well, I don't do it anymore because I just retired, but I still made the mix. Sometimes it'd be just for dailies. Sometimes it'd be just so that the editor has knows what's actually there to, to, to choose from before they go back and start using the ISO track. But I try to make it so they don't have to use them. And in many cases, that's the case. If they don't have to go back to those ISO tracks, they won't. Because it's just more trouble. It takes more time. Except on really huge movies. And then they really have to go back to them. Because you're running, you're running eight tracks with maybe 10 or 12 microphones. They have, they have to be able to separate them all and come up with their own mix. Uh, but I was, I was one of the first few guys that was doing this. Uh, uh, the guy who, who, who really opened my career up was a director named, late, late director named Robert Altman. And Robert Altman did some of the most famous movies ever. Uh, and I did a bunch of movies with him over the years. But he was the one at the time that was doing this multi-track thing. Nobody else was doing it. Uh, and so when I was like the third mixer of his, I took it over. I bought some, some of their equipment uh, and started doing that the way he wanted it done. But he was the only person that wanted it done that. Uh, after that, I literally got jobs because I hit his name on my resume. Did you see the movie? Well, it didn't matter. They didn't care. They just wanted to know that I had Robert Altman's name on my resume. Uh, and, uh, and it just went from there. Well, now it mushroomed after that into what actually most sound mixers now really don't like because it's, you don't, you don't feel like your sound mixing, your sound gathering, mm. which is, you know, not the same thing. Uh, I still make a mix, something they can actually listen to in dailies and, you know, see what's, what's there. Um, but that's 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 me and the old style guys. Is there more or less crossover than you would think in manipulating audio in the music world and manipulating audio in the movie world? Well, it's just a different thing. I mean, you know, I learned to mix in the recording studio. That's that's my start. I'm doing music, uh, uh, so I was making mixes all the time. You know, constantly during the day, making mixes for the producer and everybody to hear, etc. That's the kind of the world that I came from. I was surprised when I got into the movie industry how many, how few, how few people who, who were sound mixers had no experience in that at all. Uh, and when it suddenly became uh, the world of digital, they really struggled because it's a big difference between analog and digital. Uh, and a lot of guys really struggled with it for a while, having real problems adapting to that, that change. Uh, I didn't because I'd been doing it already. Uh, so well, I think when did that change? Like year? Year wise, yeah. Maybe 85. Okay. Maybe. I can't remember exactly. But before that, I was doing everything just mono, quarter mm-hmm. inch, analog. I still have that recorder that I did, that I recorded Dirty Dancing on. I still have it sitting in my office. Right now. <laughs> I mean, that's a famous, yeah, you should. Um, uh, so, like, how early into a film's production are you hired? Um, and uh, like, sort of become usually. a part. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, 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 well, it depends on the production. Uh, if it's super complicated, then I'm hired. You know, 
maybe a month early, but I don't go on staff until maybe two weeks before. There's a lot of prep to be done. But most movies are not that way. Most movies are much simpler than that. Yeah, there's multi-track stuff that happens, but it's not on an order of, of, of Avengers. Uh, it's mm-hmm. uh, like I just did this movie. The last movie I did, of many note, was a News of the World. It's Tom Hanks movie yeah. that uh, we did it pretty basically. Uh, uh, you know, not many, not many tracks, maybe one or two tracks. Uh, always on the move. Uh, rough, rough terrain, rough, hard job for everybody. But uh, it was kind of back to basics. So uh, it varies. It really depends on the, on the job and who's, you know, how complicated they want it to be. What does pre-production in the sound department look like or sound like? You well, know? It, it, that's changed as well. Back in the day, uh, I would go out on all the location scouts to see the locations, to see what problems we were going to encounter and have some input as to what we might have to do to treat that room or that place for the, for the sound, for the echo and, and everything, or, or find out what, what the train schedule was so we could mm. shoot near the railroad tracks, all kinds of stuff like that. I was involved in that. But over the years, that kind of went away because their times wouldn't allow and budgets sometimes don't allow for that. But the location managers and I got to be really close. So I could talk to the location manager who was out there doing it and he would tell me what's going on uh, and then I would make my comments and if I had any. Uh, but I also would know kind of what's coming up. And uh, that was important uh, to, to me anyway. Um, but they, it, the other one is literally as a matter of budget. On smaller films, if they can get away with not taking the sound mixer on locations, scouts, they're happy about that. If they want to take as few people as they can. Because those location scouts become very tedious and time-consuming and all that kind of stuff. So uh, in answer to your question, I think my involvement in pre-production in the past, I'd say, 10 years was a lot less than it was earlier. Um, so Trent and I both go to film school, and I had a professor who basically said that, like, on-set sound recording has sort of exponentiated with the amount of stuff that you're getting. And I, was, I kind of was just wondering, like, do you, because you're getting so much more, you, you're, you, you're getting like eight tracks or something. Do you well, think that yeah. well, you're having to deal with that, I guess? Like, is that actually more helpful? Like, is it eight times more helpful to have as much? Or do you think that sometimes people get lost in that? It's easy to make it overcomplicated. Mm. And the fact is that most of the sound mixers that I know of today are very tech heavy. You know, they, 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 that, that's exploded a lot. Bigger, more equipment, more microphones, more this, more that. Uh, and so, I mean, in, in the end, I was carrying 3,500 pounds of equipment on every job. And these, a lot of these guys are doing more than that now. Uh, you know, customized sound carts and and, and even customized equipment, uh, it's it became well for me. It became less and less fun because it was it was too much. It was just tech, tech, tech. Uh, and and basically, basically, my world was not about that. I'm more about trying to relate to the actors and understand what the director wants, and you know, and, and take care and to protect the editor because that's what I've always done: is protecting the editor, making sure that they don't get screwed by something I do or didn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that answers that. I think. So transitioning into our uh, movie of the week, Magnolia, um, that you've worked with Paul Thomas Anderson several times, but Magnolia was the first time, and we were wondering how how did you get on the project? How were you introduced? Well, he tried to he tried to hire me for a while. Uh, I didn't know who he was, but he was a big fan of of, of Robert Altman's. Mm. Uh, in fact, he he became Robert Altman's standby 
director on a few things toward the end of Robert's toward the end of his career because he was, he was uninsurable. His health was so bad, so Paul would go and he would be there with him in case. Uh, but he also Paul liked the way uh, Altman did his did what he did. He liked all the actors, and so he would try to hire the actors and the crew and whoever he could get. So he tried to hire me for Hard Eight, which was his first movie, and I didn't know him, he didn't know me, and so forth, and I didn't even know it was coming up. Then they tried to hire me for Boogie Nights. And the editor, who was a really good friend, he said, I, you man, I want to do this. I'm like, why? I didn't ready to read the script, so I didn't really know what I was getting into. I wish I'd done it. I left everybody in that. I know all those people, and it would have been great. So that he, the third time is the charm, got me to do uh, Magnolia. And, uh, and that was a super incredibly challenging movie. Yeah. Because the way we did it, is we're shooting, or we're shooting, we're shooting, also shooting a music video at the same time we're doing the movie. And then there's that song that plays throughout the music, which is kind of part of the music video. Uh, it was weirder than I'd ever done. Uh, and it was, in that sense, it was quite enjoyable because Paul is one of those directors you wish they were all like him because he speaks to actors. He knows how to talk to actors. He's not an actor, but he, he, he got that groove with them. They just, you know, they understand each other. And therefore, he's able to communicate to people like me what he wants in a scene. And I'm able to talk to him about it. How do we do this? What can we do to make it better? Uh, and uh, so in that sense, I love working with him because you felt like you're a collaborator rather than just doing somebody's bidding. So I was in preparation for this interview. I was going through the movie again and I found that like rain is like pervasive throughout the movie. And I was wondering, like, is that something that you had conversations about or like had to oh, really yeah. think about? Oh yeah, and yeah, how that was being mixed. And was it all rain? It was it all rain towers? I'd imagine. In that movie, yes. Uh, but the thing is, you also you have to consider: are you shooting inside or outside? And if you're shooting uh, outside, you have to consider what the rain is hitting, what kind of noises it's going to make, whether it's going to drip off the roof and make huge splashy noises in the puddles. And you can treat those puddles because inside, then you treat the roof, or you treat something so you minimize the sound of the rain hitting the roof. And then, if they need more of that, you record a, a wild track for them of whatever the rain really is, and then they use that to add on to the, to the sound track. Uh, but yes, it was a big consideration, because as you said, there's a lot of it in there. Um, so in each case, we had to you know, work with, again, with the actors to remind them that this is a very noisy scene, and they may need to adjust. A lot of times actors do not want to adjust, especially for sound, uh, so it requires having some kind of a relationship. And if I tell them what I think it's going to we need because it's going to help them, they have a choice. They can accept my advice or not. And if they accept it, then it goes one way. And if they don't accept it, then I'm in constant communication with the director saying, here's what's happening or what's not happening. What do you want to do about it? And maybe they don't want to do anything. So we just work with what they give us. You know, it's like uh, the scene in the scene in that movie where they're, uh, one of the characters is in a, in a car crying and, and trying and, and singing that song. And it's a live microphone. Those are all live. Maybe we didn't need to pre-record anything. Except the music is pretty cool. Uh, and so we had to work with a way to hear her and hear the sound of the rain. Uh, and it took a little bit of work uh, to get those two things kind of balanced out. Fortunately, that actress is wonderful to work with. And she just did whatever you need from her. Uh, so it's a conversation, always. This is more just like a general nerddom question. But how on set did the frogs from the sky operate? <laughs> Well, there weren't any frogs. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they were all 
Uh, well, I shouldn't take that. I take that back. There were some a few a few frogs in one scene where they actually threw these rubber silicone gooey frogs. Most of them are throwing down markers. There were the markers hit, and that's where they're going to put it in and, and post. The scene in the swimming pool. There were all kinds of gadgets in the swimming pool, blowing water all over the place, blowing the umbrella, all that. That's all done as as a special effects gag, and then the, and the frogs were added uh, added later. And so, uh, to circle back and uh, with like the rain, does the same go? Like this movie has a lot of like dialogue and music happening, uh, like simultaneously. And does that affect how you go about recording if it's in the script that there's going to be music playing over the top? Well, sure. Uh, we have to work with the, the composer or the music coordinator uh, and figure out what we're going to do. Whether it's playback, full playback, vocals and everything, or it's going to be a playback of a track or instrument and the vocal is live uh, and then some combination of those things. Like, did you see uh, that movie, That Thing You Do? No, the Tom Hanks film? No. I haven't seen it. I've been told well, it's to. A, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's mostly all playback of the music. The music is great. It's all original music in the style of the, the era that it's in. But a lot of the stuff involves live microphones going from from. Uh, playback to live mic to playback to live mic back and forth uh and that requires a real coordination with everybody uh, props department you know set decorator all these to make everything work to have a pa system that you can even have in the picture use it as a actual video visual thing uh and then the uh the actors the weird thing if you ever see the movie the actors aren't singing well they're <laughs> they're singing but they're terrible singers and all that's pre-recorded, uh, and so I have to be able to bring the vocals in and out of the uh, of the mix that they're hearing out there on the set. Uh, and then, of course, the audience is having to react to some particular the dancing and doing all kinds of stuff. And a lot of times, we will have one or two people in the uh, in the, uh, the extras will have hidden earphones, and they'll keep the beat. They're dancing and so forth, so that everybody else keys off of them because we can't have their their talking and all that stuff if we've got actual live microphones to record. Uh, it's kind of tricky, actually. Uh, but in, in Magnolia, there's a lot, the singing is all live. There's no playback. Uh, but we just, we would play back on a speaker and down in the, in the car, someplace close by. I think in one occasion, we actually put a thing in somebody's ear. But mostly it was, uh, just low, low music. And they would sing and, you know, perform live. So we're talking about Magnolia because I'm a huge Tom Cruise fan, and this is part of a three-part Cruise-a-Palooza, we're calling it. Um, and so I wanted to ask, uh, in talking with you, it seems like you have to had to talk with the actors. Like, what was Tom Cruise like? Tom is Tom is one of those. Tom is an is a is a dream uh, to to work with. I mean, he's so sharp and he's so indefatigable. I mean, on some of the scenes in there, you know, in the scene with when he's talking, when he's Going doing the video thing, doing a video. We did. I would say we did sixty takes in a row, nonstop. Never complained. Nothing. Like some actors get really nasty about stuff like that. He was just right on on target the whole time. Very generous to the crew. Just a really great guy to work with. You have to ignore some things about him if he starts talking religion. But uh, but uh, was he, he talking about that on set or was no. it just like in general? Okay. No. No. I mean, you just have to know that. If he does, you just have to walk away. Uh, but he doesn't really. I mean, he's, he's, he's very cognizant of all that sort of stuff. Uh, 
I would, yeah, yeah. I loved working with him. Okay. And that was a, it was a month of nights on that, uh, on that thing. He bought a, he bought a coffee and tea truck every night for the group. And just little things like that. You know? And you said that you shot that thing, the videotape for 60 takes. Was that like the way PTA was shooting? Like, was that like a common thing or was something going? Well, because it was video, there was no reason to stop mm. and reload. Okay. Because Paul shoots on film primarily. Right. A lot of that show was shot on film, but all that video stuff was all shot video. Uh, it was all shot, you know, uh, the, the, the game show. That was all, they basically set up an entire video operation and a film operation. We shot simultaneously. Uh, so we shot it, you know, like we had, like a film and like, like a regular TV show. All live cameras, all that stuff was live. Um, but that was unusual. Uh, as I said, Paul likes to, he really, he really works in film. And are there, I mean, you spoke about the scene where I think it's Julianne Moore was in the car. Um, but are, are there any particular scenes where like, this was a challenge and you look at the final film and you're like, wow, I'm really proud of how that all got put together that you can remember. I know it was a while back at this point. Well, the game shows, the game show was very challenging. Actually, the opening scene in that movie was really challenging. The, That's a long, the long, 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 no, the, the, the steady cam shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the boy and his, and his father come in for the game show, for their that game show, what you know, kids know or whatever it is. What uh, do kids know, I think. What do kids know? Uh, we shot that at CBS Studios in, in L.A., and it started out in the rain out in the parking lot. And they followed him inside the building and down a long, long hallway. And these guys are talking in the hallway. And at some point, they split up. And the boy goes with the girl into the green room. And the father goes the other direction and meets him somewhere else. And then we follow the camera. And then we come back around. And we go outside, again, out of the green room and out to an elevator. And they get on the elevator and they're talking the hallway. And then they go up in the elevator to another floor. And they get out of that and they're still talking and go into an office. And that was a booger. I mean, that was like so hard because radio waves don't work well in buildings like that. So that was a challenge to begin with. Using, using wireless microphones is very difficult. Uh, but the, uh, we were, actually all the state game shots were like that. The game show, and there's a, there's a shot in the game show where they come from the, from the dressing room, uh, out onto the, to the stage where the, the, they're setting up for the game show. We did so many takes of that. We went through three steady cam operators that day. It just wore out. You know, they just couldn't do it anymore because it's all upstairs and all kinds of stuff. So it was physically very challenging. Uh, so he, they, he likes stuff like that. And he likes that because he likes so much of all that stuff. Have you ever seen the opening shot? Have you ever seen the movie The Player? Oh, wait. It, wait I, I think they, they, they showed a it's, – it's a very long take, like going through a bunch of buildings, and it's like Hollywood people talking. Am I crazy? Yeah, I, I, know, I know the shot you're talking about. That was at the time, for the longest time, the longest opening scene of any movie ever. It was 11 minutes because that's how long a film roll was. Uh, and we shot it. I mean, you, you can see it. If you ever go see a... You worked on that movie? Yeah. Uh, that, uh, it's the guy from Shawshank Redemption. What's his name? Tim, Tim Robbins? Yeah. 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 That, was a, that was quite an experience, that show, so, for sure. Uh, th- this is probably a simple... When you're doing a really long take like that, do you have a boom operator like running behind the operation or is it lavalier mics? It's all, it's all of the above. I mean, we plant, we plant microphones sometimes. Sometimes it's one boom. Sometimes it's two. Uh, it just depends. Every scene has its own requirements. Uh, that particular opening scene, we end up using 15 wireless microphones. 
Uh, and, and so yeah, are, yeah. are you like planting microphones where like key pieces of dialogue or something are going to be delivered? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. A lot of times, well, if you ever see the, the opening, it starts off with three or four people coming out of, a, of an office building and they walk across the parking lot and they're talking. And then they pass by some other people coming the other direction and they're talking. So we go with them and then eventually goes up and into uh, Tim, Tim Robbins office and you hear him talking to somebody and then it leaves that office and it goes to another office and, and, and then it goes around in a big circle uh, and, and picks up more people in the parking lot. They're all talking all the time. Uh, and it got so to the point where at the time there weren't that many wireless microphones out there. I mean, that you could choose from and you could, it was really hard to run more than a few together for lots of technical reasons. So, but that day he just kept, he, he just kept adding people, adding people. We started to see, and I said, how many people are going to be speaking on, on, wires and he said oh four maybe four people and it kept it kept growing and growing and growing so by the end of the day on we shot the scene on sunday i was calling friends he got a wire wireless microphones you could bring and he would bring them over and we'd hide them and we'd set them in, in shrubs uh and just wherever we could get them and it finally ran out and bob added one more line i said bob we don't have any more wireless microphones uh, and he said, what can we do? And so he actually came up with the idea. And in the scene, there's a, a person with a clipboard. And they're talking to somebody next to him. And then they leave the scene. And then later on, you see this guy leading a group of people across the parking lot. And he's talking. He's got a, he's got a, a clipboard. So we just put the microphone on the clipboard. So when he passed it off, he gave it to the other person. And he's on that, that one. So that's how we did it. Wow, Trent. What an interview. And to think it's only part one. Yeah. Um, uh, thanks again to John Pritchett so much for talking with us. Um, next week, we've got he's got some cool stories from other sets he's been on. Talks about Avengers Endgame. Talks a little Terrence Malick. Mm, um, a little know, bit of everything. Yeah, a little bit of everything. It's almost like when you come home from trick-or-treating on Halloween night, you pour mm. out your candy bag. Yeah, uh, these, these references are going to be so stale by the time. I mean, mm. Isn't that so sad? You're on fire. Well, yeah, I don't. I, I was complimenting you on your use of stale as in terms of candy, rather than I was reacting. I think these comments are timeless. Oh, okay. But uh, Parth, more of a, you know what's getting stale? Us talking this episode. Okay, you're not wrong. But before we go, Parth, it's Halloween night. You're in like sixth grade. You're trick or treating with your friends. You knock on the door, ring the doorbell. Someone opens it. They extend a candy bowl. You look inside. What are you reaching for? I do love Kit Kat. Mmm. I do like Sour Patch Kids. Um. And I think a sleeper hit. Um. I've been seeing this on TikTok a lot about sleeper builds. Of men that are muscular but don't look like they're muscular when they're wearing clothes, and I feel like the crunch bar for me is like a sleeper hit of um, candy bars. I really enjoy them, but I feel like nobody talks about them. A bunch of crunch might be my favorite all-time movie snack. I love bunch of crunch for for movie. I'm not kidding. Why, why are you looking at me like this? Oh, it's because you seem so enthusiastic that I thought it was artificial and that you were just No, Trent, it's just because I'm Tom Cruise now. Oh. <laughs>
next week, you can look forward to our second, uh, to the second part of this interview. Um, again, some cool stuff there. Thanks for listening to this one. You'll love the next one. And the week after that, we'll do our discussion and, um, that'll be that for Magnolia, but, uh, exciting times. Yeah. This is only the beginning of Cruzapalooza. Um, you can go listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, wherever you get really your wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. And on those podcasts that allow you to, to to leave reviews or ratings, please do so, and preferably a positive one. Preferably. The one person that gave us a four star review, go fuck yourself. Do you know who that is? No, really, no. Um. Oh yeah, because it's on Spotify. Yeah, because yeah. we have like a four point eight. Yeah. Kind of fucked. Yeah. <sighs> But we also have uh, social media, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, we post funny things, funny, cool, funny, cool things. Funny, cool, funny, cool. Um, and you can go check us out there. Uh, other than that, I think we're good to go. Trent, you have office hours to go to. You have, uh, I would say, a train to catch, but is it a train to I catch? I think I'm taking an Uber. Parth, close you- enough that it only costs like 20 bucks or something. Parth, you have an Uber. You have a car to catch. Yeah. Go. Uh, is that you? Yeah, I don't know if the mic caught it, but there was a there was a sound. Honk honk. Parth. Cars outside. Whoa. Beep, All right. beep. Which I'll add a honk sound. Beep, beep. No, you don't have to. Oh, true. <laughs> All right. Uh, bye, guys.